and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-recommended roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Hannah and Wayne and Monica. How's it going, guys? Hey, Mav. Hey, hey, Hannah. Hey, Monica. <laughs> I always say, hey, Mav. It just hit me. I never say hi to the rest of you. I think we should all do that every time. It should be like the Waltons, you know? John Boy. <laughs> And I know what we're getting fast forwarded through now. Oh, well, oh come on. The, Walton, the Waltons is so great that they're actually bringing the Waltons back as IP. That was in the news this week. And in, in pop culture news that only Mav reads, yeah, somebody's trying to reboot the Waltons. Because, you know, as you just joked, I don't think most of the people in our audience are even going to get that joke. I don't think anybody who does get that joke is asking for the Waltons to come back, but it's an IP. So we're doing this. Well, Mav, I am holding in my hand a mug that says I can't even. And I think that says it all. Yeah, there will be an audience. That's true. That's true. Uh, So I I did want to announce just because of last week, before we get into the topic, last week I pointed out that, you know, in my exhaustion of working at three different schools, um, at least I've never accidentally driven to the wrong school. That is no longer true. This week on on Monday um, of this week, I drove to the wrong school and I got out of my car and I looked out and I saw that's not the building that I mean, my office is in that building, but not the office I mean to be in. So I had to get back in my car and drive to the other school. And it was only, you know, it was only a loss of like 15 minutes of my day. But still, I was just like, (sighs) I did not drive to the school that was two hours away, though. So that's that's where my life is. How are you guys doing? <laughs> well, you've brightened our day with that humorous antidote. Oh, I guess we could go to the topic because this is this is a Hannah topic. And yeah. as I understand it, today we are spinning a deep dive just into the history of the um black exploitation film Blackula. That's it. Nothing else. We're talking about nothing else today except Blackula. Is that correct? <laughs> Um, I don't want to say no, but also, <laughs> but also to get there, I think that is probably important to start with Dracula. Um, Never heard of him. <laughs> don't know that term. <laughs> really, because he's a character in the classic horror film. Oh Blackula. yeah, yeah, I see. Oh, that guy from the very yes. beginning. Yes, okay, I do. Yeah. I do recall. Um, yes, I do recall there being a, a Dracula fellow that, that occurred. Yes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I. I feel like actually, uh, since I since I finished my dissertation, I have reread two Victorian novels, one of which was A Christmas Carol. Uh, and the second is uh, for this episode, the 1897 uh, classic Dracula, <laughs> which, um, yes, 1897. I do. I do know things still, uh, which we are not just talking about the uh, novel by Bram Stoker, but we're talking about all the Draculas, all of them. Dracula. 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 Yes, Dracula. I, I, I have um, to insist on Dracula. <laughs> including, including, I, I, I'm like, I'm like gesturing um, as I hold up books, which I realize is a pot. We're on a podcast, so you can't see, but including Powers of Darkness, the lost mm-hmm. Icelandic version of Dracula, Nosferatu, the technically, I think maybe one of the first adaptions of Dracula, because even though like it's not really named Dracula, like the, 
everything is Dracula. Like, they literally still lines from the novel. Like, it's totally Dracula. Um, okay. To the 1992 film that should not exist. Um, yes, all the Dracula. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Dracula. 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 I'm going to be alive for we're, this we're, entire episode. We'll have to figure out how to conjugate this. Um, okay. Also, there, you know, there's a Dracula ballet. There's plenty of video games. There's the Fury of Dracula board game. So, like, lots, lots of, of IPs. Lots of comics. Lots of comics. Yes. Lots, yeah. The 2013 miniseries that Ooh. I watched so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch it this week? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, See, yeah. I, I, I got to watch Blackula this week, so I, I you know, I feel, I feel pretty good about it, you know, which I didn't realize. I, I mean, so wait, wait what, year, what year is um, the original Dracula novel? 1897. 1897. Okay, so Blackula is 1972. So it's odd that I don't really think about it but it's not that long it's between the publication of those two books which is odd to me i don't know why but anyway normally when we do halloweeny shows we have um we, we've had we've had halloweeny and mo- monster shows you know we've had a recurring guest that we've brought back a couple of times and you know i i, I don't know um y- you haven't been around for a while but we have michael chimmers coming back so mike normally you just kind of drop in on any show and we're always surprised when you're here where you been <laughs> actually i've been I've been here the whole time. Yeah, I've just been listening. I've just been sort of taking it all in. Um, you know, I don't have a lot to say when you talk about like, you know, pop culture icons, Britney Spears and stuff like that. I don't have a lot to say about that. You know, but when it comes to monsters, I'll pipe up. Okay. So like, you know, so like just li- literally you've been, you've secretly been on the last 40 something episodes, just, you know, yes. <laughs> now, now we have to go back and tag you and all that. <laughs> and oh, also so for, all the listeners, for all the listeners who are playing the home game it's true that's canon now <laughs> well also i want to welcome for the first time to the show we have a we have a new friend who um like mike is a, a, a monster scholar as it were so welcome to the show kate coker hey kate hello how are you guys kate welcome uh kate tell people about your uh, about yourself so people know who you are as well sure okay so by day i am I'm a curator of rare books and manuscripts at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And 24-7, I'm a huge honking nerd. Um, but one of the things I'm super into is vampires. And in 2020, um, I published an, a collection that I edited called The Global Vampire that looks at a vampire in popular culture around the world. Um, the vampires, it appears in Korean dramas and in Australian young adult novels and um, American films and everyone is in agreement that vampires are cool. Mm-hmm. Um, that is yeah. true. Everyone is in agreement about that. That's true. <laughs> That's just funny. It's like, so I, 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 I nothing. No, no, no. no. We, we resolved something. That's the end of the show. Thank you for joining us. If you can leave us a five star review on the oh, way, <laughs> it's like the shortest episode ever. <laughs> no. Going to Actually, you now. Can I can I mention uh, my book too? So it gets in the oh, show notes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. <laughs> we're, we're into that at the end of the episode plugging things. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Yeah, my book is the Monster in Theater History: This Thing of Darkness, available from Rutledge. Press 2018. I wonder if anybody's actually going to turn off the show right now. I could I could have just started the music. I mean, I didn't start the epic theme song, so I didn't do that up. But, um, all right. But 
I did so much work for this. <laughs> okay, well, okay, okay. Hannah, this was okay. We'll this was let Hannah talk for yeah. crying out loud. <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was Hannah's idea for a show because you know, I well, I mean, I guess when you're a pop culture scholar with a you know with your own podcast, why should you ever just read something to enjoy it? Clearly, anything that we read just becomes a show. And I'm not I'm not complaining about Hannah doing this because this has literally been like a good 30% of the shows that we've ever done have been something that I had to do anyway. Like that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's where a lot of them come from. So, um, Hannah, you wanted to do this. And I believe the first um, instance of this was apropos of nothing. You sent to our, you know, to our ongoing group post chat. Yes. The 1992 Dracula sucks. And we're like, yeah. um, good morning <laughs> to you too, Hannah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't pretend like you don't do this all the oh, time. No, 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 I'm not. Again, again, absolutely. I do. <laughs> I'm just I'm trying to get context. Like that's yeah. where they started. It does. Okay. Besides, besides, again, the costumes and the practical effects, the 192 version of Dracula sucks. Um, <laughs> it's like the people in both the costumes in there as also kind of sucks. But I don't love the costumes because I think they're great. I love the costumes because if you look at just Google Lucy 1992 Dracula and it's just like the weirdest thing. It's just so out there. It's like, why? And then there's a scene where Lucy is like walking through the night in like this red dress. That's not very good. Uh, and like just just for no reason, just blowing in the wind. And, you know, it like anyway, it gave me something to like focus on besides my hatred of this storyline um which it, it, it just felt like anybody they had read dracula it people say it's like one of the most faithful adaptations ever but it's like they misunderstood every bit of dracula i don't know yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I have to that, and I have to say that, like, the shoulder pads from the 90s called, and that was a mistake. <laughs> what on earth? What on earth? Yes. I would say that Dracula Dead and Loving It is more faithful to the novel than Dracula 1992. I mean, I feel like of all the adaptation, adaptations I've seen, I feel like Nosferatu is still the most faithful to the novel, and, like, not necessarily in a good way, because it, like, really hones in on like some of the like awful parts of Dracula like the racism and really just magnifies it but also like I was gonna say I mean like faithful in a like litigious way like like the fact that Nosferatu was almost destroyed entirely because it's such a direct adaptation the only reason we can still watch Nosferatu to this day for who aren't like film history buffs is the fact that one copy was not destroyed and has now been copied in proliferation to be watched at, you know, like silent art house movie movie palaces around Halloween. But <laughs> like that movie was never meant to exist because it was, well, it was meant to exist. Like, it was never meant to continue to exist. Yeah. There exactly, is. Exactly. We should tell that story. Like so first off, what is Nosferatu? That matters, Hannah. <laughs> sure. Um okay. So I also should say that I found Nosferatu because um I, I met my boyfriend when we were on a stay abroad and he's a German major and he was doing a German film course. Uh, Nosferatu is a 1922 silent German horror film and uh, it, it literally just like rips from the 1897 novel and like you have like remember um, it's 1897 and 1992 like it's not that far apart. Um, so like it changes like the characters names like Dracula is Count Orlock and Mina is like Ellen um, but it's 
it's basically like it's literally Dracula. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 not basically it's it's Dracula. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it did add some things. It adds some things though, because in the original novel, if you haven't read it, um, you might be surprised to know that Dracula is out in the daylight in the original novel, whereas uh, the end of Nosferatu spoiler for a 1922 film. Um, uh, Ellen like sacrifices herself to like get him to like feed on her blood as the sun rises and Orlok's allergic to the sun so like he disappears into the sunlight so that's like a big deviation that's also like very um, influential in how we think about vampires and like tell Dracula's story over the years too. It's always fascinating to me how these um, aspects of the story that we think are indelible and that were absolutely part of the story from the beginning, like Dracula's allergy to sunlight or werewolves and silver bullets, right? That these are all actually very late additions to the stories. Yeah. And the sunlight itself, I mean, that that's because the director, um, uh, Murnau, like he had like this motif of sunlight as being like this like purity and this like moral thing that he worked into his films. And in fact, one of his most famous famous films is straight up just called Sunrise, um, which Louis goes to into in the interview with the vampire um, film much later. There's like all this intellectual stuff going on. But this idea of like, you know, the sun burning away all of the evil and so forth is just fascinating. So, okay, so now we should move to the thing that Monica was alluding to. So Nosferatu gets made as an early horror film, but it is, I mean, it's an original screenplay, right? 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 <laughs> Based on the novel. No, no, it's just called Nosferatu and, it, and it's it's blatant copyright violation. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, they were supposed to have been destroyed because, you know, you can't just rip something off. And they did. Um, except, Awkward. as Monica said, yeah, as Monica said, there was, except, there was like said, a surviving copy. A singular copy survived. Um, yeah. And that's the reason that we can all watch it today. Yeah. And it's looked at as revolutionary in the world of filmmaking. It, it, I mean, it, it is one of the most important films ever made. Um, not even horror films, just films. Um, but it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's important because it's how I met my boyfriend, but <laughs> you know, definitely the most important <laughs> film ever made. No argument, you win. That's true. I, you know, that's true. Okay, it's, fine. I, I always thought it was really interesting how many of those early films are based on monsters or monster films, um, mm-hmm. like Edison's Frankenstein, 1910, uh, Murnau, uh, Der Gollum, Vian der Caligari. Yeah, Caligari. Caligari. Caligari is technically the first uh, when when you look film scholar wise there's obviously more because there's all these early monster films but Caligari is sort of always lauded as like the first horror film. also the first film with a twist ending and there's the mummy that has nothing to do with the novel that it was based on. It kept like two names and then has nothing to do with it, which I find entertaining. So how do we get from there to, I, I mean, to the important I mean, stuff like Blackula, but I guess to Hannah's thing about the 1992 Dracula being bad, I guess. And you're gonna get it. I mean, we, don't, we don't have to like rehash it again and again, because like we all know it's bad. We all know it's trash. We all, uh, I, you know, so like, and that's the thing I, to me, and, and I did not rewatch it for this episode. I was going to, but then I thought, you know, I could do that or I could grade that with my time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or you could spend 13 hours watching the 2013. 
13 miniseries version. <laughs> Wait, it was 13 hours? Oh my God. It was so many episodes, which is something I wanted oh to bring God. up with you guys. Like when we when we're talking about vampire adaptations and the fact that we're like, we're adding things. Every film is adding something and they're adding something, I don't know, because cultural context, because artistic license. But they're all adding things into just one feature length movie and not padding out the original book for 13 fucking hours. <laughs> 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 I haven't to talk specifically about all the things that we're choosing to add in. And why was, do you think those things are being added in? <laughs> it was slowly draining your life force. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Best all-time Dracula add-in, though. 1931 version with armadillos. Someone said, hey, you know what would make this great? Let's get in like a lot of armadillos and just throw them into Dracula's castle. It'll be awesome. And then they did. Armadillos. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I always I always learn something from film scholars. <laughs> so, I was going to say, I, I think we've actually skipped a bit of the history by going straight to Nosferatu, which is Millie. It's my fault. We like I when I read the novel this time, I was struck about how like theatrical like the original text is, like how mm-hmm. much it like references the stage or like there. Like, I mean, my my Norton edition shout out to Norton, as always, like constantly like just mentions, um, you know, like, oh, here's a quote from like Shakespeare here is you know Henry Irving who like was an actor that like Stoker was thinking of and you know Stoker had his own like history with the stage so like I feel like maybe one of us here um, might have something to say about like Dracula and it's and it's theatricality drum roll please Yeah, Mike, yeah, jump jump in here because you you wrote about a lot of that in your book. Dracula on stage? Yes, I do have something about that. But, well, thank you, Hannah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, the the fascinating thing about you know Dracula uh, and the history of Dracula on stage. I mean, if you compare this to Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein and the original story that Dracula. Does everybody know the story about the Via Diodati and Lord Byron and Mary Shelley and how they invented both Dracula and Frankenstein on the same night? Yes. Well, yes. But maybe roughly, the listeners yeah. don't. So yeah. maybe you want to yeah. throw yeah. <laughs> an abbreviated version in there. All right. I'll throw, I'll try and throw a quick version in there. So the year is 1816. And. Sure. It's Sicily, 1816. Sorry. Switzerland. <laughs> 1816. The young peasant girl. No. So what happens is these, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where we're always looking, uh, in, as modern academics, we're always looking for ways to proliferate the discourse and decolonize, uh, our curriculum and try to, uh, get outside the influence of, you know, dead white Europeans. But the truth of the matter is, is that this one night, these rich teenagers from England got together in a house in Switzerland and basically invented horror culture for the next 200 years. So they, they, uh, they were having a little opium soaked evening and they were a bunch of poets and free thinkers and whatnot. And, uh, they decided that they were going to write a ghost story to, um, 
to pass the time because they couldn't go outside because there was a huge volcano that had just erupted and it was kind of like a nuclear winter. Uh, in America, they called it 1800, 1800 and froze to death. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so they were hanging out and they decided to write ghost stories. And um, Mary Shelley, of course, wrote the draft of what would eventually become Frankenstein. But Lord Byron wrote a little tiny fragment of a story about a man who is traveling with an older man. The older man dies, and then the young man carries on, and then the young man sees him years later in another city, but the man is younger. That's all it was. It was just that one little story. And John Polidori, who was Byron's doctor, stole that story, stole that little fragment of a story, and turned it into a story about a vampire uh, named Ruthven, Count Ruthven. Riven. It's Lord Riven. Riven. It's pronounced Lord Riven. Thank you. It's pronounced Lord Riven. So Lord Riven, and that was the interesting thing about that is that Lord Riven was a character in um I have to start saying it Riven now. Uh Lord Riven was a character in a novel by um uh uh, Byron's ex-girlfriend, Lady Carolyn Lamb, uh, who had described Byron as sort of like a vampiric type creature, not as a vampire whatsoever, but as someone who could charm with his eyes and had a very dark foreboding look and, oh, if only some girl could tame him, you know, that kind of thing. And his name was Lord Riven. So when Polidori is writing about a vampire, an actual vampire named Lord Riven, everybody knows that it's really Lord Byron that he's talking about, you see. So Lord Byron becomes associated with vampires in that way. And that's the first time we get this notion of a vampire that could actually disguise itself as a normal human being in order to prey on the innocent. And that came out in 1818, I believe. I'm sure I got that right. But um, 1819 that came out the same year that Frankenstein came out. Yes, I think I think Frankenstein was 1818. Polidori's 1819, but that comes out the same year as the Black Vampire. Um, and America does. So the so the, the to answer your question eventually, Hannah. <laughs> um, yeah, the theatrical adaptations of both Frankenstein and this story about the vampire uh, it was called the Vampire. The theatrical adaptations begin right away in England and France, and they go on and on for a long time, and that so therefore you've got about 60 years of very vibrant theatrical recreations of the vampire story before you get to Sheridan Lefanu writing um, oh, some tip of my tongue, Camilla and Bram Stoker is obviously very heavily influenced by Camilla because he stole a whole section of Dracula right out of Camilla and got sued for it um, and so you've got this history of stage adaptations of the story of Dracula that predate Dracula and heavily influence the writing of Dracula whereas the first stage version of Dracula I think probably comes in 1923. Okay, that's what I have to say about Dracula in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> and, and since we're talking about the stage, oh, okay, so just to skip ahead, um, like, a hundred years um, or so, uh, has anyone seen Dracula love, like, a, uh, not not love at first, but, but Dracula, like, ballet, like, a ballet with a bite? Oh, yeah, anyone, absolutely. Um, I, I love it. Oh, yeah, like that. Oh, yeah, we've all seen that. No. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Of course I've seen it. For the listeners, what is this? Um, okay, so um, there, there is, in, in more recent Dracula history, there was a uh, ballet, um, and how I how I have seen this is that the um, areas like youth um, ballet company put on um, a, a rendition of Dracula 
which is fascinating. It, it sticks semi-closely to the source material, um, but like the very end is like a climax in like a cemetery. And actually, I have like photos from the performance because I bothered to look this up. Um, and like the women are all like vampires and the men overcome Dracula and like eventually all the women die. Like that's like the end of the ballet. Yeah. And that's so interesting to me and actually so many actually quite a few of these like Dracula stories are interesting to me because about like what happens to the women. Yeah, the, the relationships of women to Dracula I think are, are particularly fascinating in the Bram Stoker story, right? Because uh, Jonathan Harker who you expect to be the protagonist of Dracula is actually kind of an ineffectual wuss. Can't that's, handle it. That's the one thing the 1992 version got right. I'm, I'm right. out here saying Keanu Reeves was a correct casting choice sort of. Anyway, continue Michael. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, I do really like, there is one thing about, and, I, and this is an extension of Keanu Reeves being cast in that in that particular position. But there is a scene in Dracula in the in the novel, and I think it's a very important scene, and it gets us into some deep discussion here. I think in Dracula's castle, Harker is attacked by these three female vampires who are victims of Dracula. Dracula's wives—they're often called. And he mistakes their advances for sexual advances as opposed to, you know, culinary ones. And he, <laughs> he, he is horrified by the sexual advances from these women for three reasons. One is that they're women, right? And it's not for women in the Victorian era to be sexual towards men, right? That is just not done. So that horrifies mm -hmm. him. The second thing that horrifies him is that they penetrate him instead of him penetrating them, you see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've mentioned mm -hmm. that one. I remember that. Mm -hmm. That horrifies him. And then the third thing that horrifies him is that he likes it. Yeah. Would, would you like me to read a passage? Oh, I would love it if you happen to have that handy. <laughs> I... I felt in my heart a wicked burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It was not good to note this down, lest someday it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it was the truth. And also, um, I just want to point out that like on the very next page, Dracula comes in and he says, how dare you touch him, any of you? How dare you cast eyes on him when I have forbidden it back? I tell you all, this man belongs to me. And then they laugh and say, you yourself never loved, you never love. It's why Dracula is like so homoerotic no matter where or when it is. Like, maybe the 1992 sin is the fact that everyone is irredeemably straight. Maybe. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Um... <laughs> Uh, I, I was say I, that John, sorry. John Polidori's uh, short story, The Vampire, is pretty queer. It's pretty homoerotic. Yeah. I mean, well, am, am, am I just misremembering making up? Didn't Polidori probably have a thing for Byron that was unresolved? Am I just making that up? He had a thing for everybody. But he was like seriously trying to get like set up with Mary Shelley. And Mary Shelley right. was like, yeah, you're nice, but, and I would, but you know, I'm, I'm preoccupied with my dead babies. What can I do? I'm sorry. Yeah. I wasn't earnestly <laughs> depressed. We could, but you know, and she like puts some ever. These stories that, you know, the, the party that Mike's referring to where, um, where all of the, where, you know, science fiction's invented, where, <laughs> um, where Shelley does Frankenstein, like, like that party is also basically an orgy, right? Like, isn't that part of why they're there? <laughs> like, that was it's I mean, an opium soaked evening with friends. Yes. 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 <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> Wayne, and I, Wayne and I have been there together. Yeah. <laughs> 
picture it. Pittsburgh, I mean, I, <laughs> It was a dark and stormy night. I, mean, I did want to ask about the sort of like de-queering and also the weird, like, when does that shift where Dracula becomes an anti-hero start to pop up? Because there seems to be all of this excuse, like all of these like narrative excuses as to why he loves uh, Mina so much, why it's actually okay. Cause like, Oh, the, the reincarnated like dead wife that wasn't a thing until like, like where, where, where do these come from? Vampire scholars educate me. <laughs> it was super popular in the seventies, right? At the mm-hmm, same time, mm-hmm. you've got Anne Rice interview with the vampire, her vampire chronicles. And you also have Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough with her comp St. Germain series. And they're both these like, oh, it is so difficult to be immortally beautiful and wealthy and white. <laughs> oh, oh, our pain, our tremendous man pain, right? And and I mean, the thing I can get over the first time I read Dracula is like he is gross and rapey, like yes. Yes. Seeing, like yeah. describes like him like making um uh, uh Mina I think it's Mina drink his blood yeah. and like yeah. the literal like word phrases used is like you know like pushing it, a kitten's nose into yes. milk. Uh, I got the passage if you want it. <laughs> yeah, we do. Diana, come on, read it. <laughs> okay. All right. So also Harker's there, BT dubs. So like the like little band of merry vampire hunters walk in and on the bed beside the window lay Jonathan Harker, his face flushed and breathing heavily as though in a stupor. Kneeling near the edge of the bed, facing outwards, was the white clad figure of his wife. By her side stood a tall, thin man clad in black. His face was turned from us, but the instant we saw, we all recognized the Count in every way, even to the scar on his forehead. With his left hand, he held both Mrs. Harker's hands, keeping them away with her arms at full tension. His right hand gripped her by the back of the neck, forcing her face down on his bosom. Her white nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the man's bare breast, which was shown by his torn open dress. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. Mm, yo, and then you know first of all, who would do that to a kitten? And also, she was she's described as a victim, like several lines down, just to make it abundantly clear. I, I think it's super interesting that in the novel, he's only ever described as wearing black, but we have this image of him dressed in uh, a tuxedo, right? As if he's going to the theater. Some of us are just stylish, Mike. <laughs> I mean, get a bigger reaction, I have to say. Yeah, to go, but to go back to Monica's question, Kate's point, as, as far as I can tell, the reincarnation storyline starts perhaps actually literally with Blackula in the 70s or very near things. Um, around then, that's when like all the reincarnation stories or like love sympathetic stuff pops up. Um, there, is it really that, is some, that really the first one? I mean, I can't. I mean, I'm not an American film scholar, and I'm just mm-hmm. like looking through stuff. But as far as I can tell, there were a lot in the 70s, like many ones. Yeah. But Blackula is Blackula 72, and yes. that's the earliest one I can find. Okay, so story of Blackula. Right. Okay, yeah, I think that's right. Love at first bite has an immortal love story attached to it. That? Love at first bite is um, yeah. Okay, and yeah, Blackula is definitely 72. Um, I don't know enough about because i'm you know i'm i'm a film scholar but i'm not necessarily um a horror scholar um more suspense um anyway we've, we've talked about that before blackula is 72 and i can think of several after it but i don't 
I don't know enough about other earlier adaptations. Um, to make it clear, uh, the um, the character of Blackula is Blackula is not his name. Um, it, no, it is not his name. It is, it is, it is, no, it's used like the, the word Blackula is in, is in the script. Um, he does, Dracula says that early on once or twice and then it never comes up, comes up again. So the concept is, um, back in the day, in the, in the, in the days of yore when, when there were vampires, um, <laughs> um, uh, this um, this African prince and his wife go to visit um, to visit to visit this man Count Dracula, and they're asking for Count Dracula's help in fighting the slave trade. And Dracula um, is like, "No, I won't help you." And he's like, "Why?" And he's like, "Well, because I am evil." And he also, and then like um, Mama Walde, who is the which is what Dracula's name actually is, he's like evil no i will fight you so they go and they fight um but dracula has all of his minions and his minions go and they they bonk um mama wade over the head um and then dracula is like oh by the way i'm also a vampire you know it literally he he, he hadn't mentioned it until just now so um and mama wade is what he's like well i'm a vampire and you you are going to be cursed you're going to share in my curse of immortal vampire life but in order to so he you know he so he's like i'm going to turn you into a vampire and but in order to drive you crazy rather than just turning you into a vampire i'm going to torture you by putting you in this casket that i'm going to bolt shut so you're going to crave blood like i do forever and be immortal but you're never going to be able to have it because i'm bolting you shut in 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 this casket and it's 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 a weird thing and he's like and you will be my blackula like that's a thing that he says, you know, because they've got to get the title into the into the movie somehow. And then, and then after that, he does. He turns Mama Wade into a vampire, bolts his casket shut, and then he takes Mama Wade's um, wife and like locks her in the tomb, not as a vampire. He just locks her in the tomb with Blackula to make her powerless to save her husband. She just has to die starving to death, knowing that like her beloved is, you know, help, powerless to help her. And it's supposed to be tragic. And they both die. And this is the opening five minutes of the film. And then you fast forward to 1972 to, you know, modern day at the time. And um, these two uh, fashionable gay men, because it's the 70s, um, these two fashionable gay men are trying to outfit their new home with some, you know, some gothic design. So they buy this here casket that they find, this authentic casket to put in your living room, as gay men often did. And then they take this casket and it turns out that this casket was owned by um, Dracula, but Dracula is a myth. No, Dracula was real. Bullshit. Well, let's see what's in the casket. So they open up the casket because why wouldn't you? Because you know somehow this ancient casket's not in a museum. These two guys just just buy it and they open up the casket and look, there's a vampire in there who promptly kills them both, thus turning them into vampires. And Mamuade escapes to wander to wander the um, the city streets. Um, but 
while he's going around eating people, he discovers um, this young woman named Tina. And Tina is um, a dead ringer for his wife from, you know, a couple hundred years before. So he figures you must be her reincarnated and like we must be together. And he explains to Tina that like he is actually this, you know, 200 year old vampire and he's not, you know, he's not just some random guy with a cool disco cape, which is like a thing. <laughs> and because people keep talking about how awesome the cape is, the cape is really nice. He's just a guy in a tuxedo with a cape and everybody's like, dude, can I get that cape? And Mama Wadi is like, no, it's my cape. That's part of the story. Um, but Tina, here's the story. And she's like, okay, yeah, I'm into it. Yeah. Okay. I'm probably a reincarnated wife. It doesn't take her a lot of convincing. She's just like, oh, okay. Well, you know, you do look really sexy in that cape. Let's have sex now. So they do. And then um, the cops decide, well, we can't have a vampire wandering around. So they're they're hunting him. I mean, and to be fair, he is killing a lot of people because he's a vampire. So he eats people. Um, And so the cops basically chase him down and um, Tina absolutely accidentally gets shot. So the cops are so Mama Wadi is like, oh, well, I need to save you now. So I'm going to turn you into a vampire now so that we can be together forever. But then the cops are like, uh, bullshit, no vampires on our watch. So just as she's turning into a vampire, the cop stakes her, so kills her. Oh, and in front of her sister, because the cop is dating her sister. And it's it's very convoluted. And they kill her. And then when did the cops get stakes? Like, you know, sometimes stakes are just laying around. And, yeah. I mean, it's New it's New York. Sometimes you just find cops like mistakes like laying around on the street. Doesn't doesn't everybody? I think they're in New York. They might be in LA. You know, they're in a they're in a random city. But like, you know, there's just stakes around. So they stake so they stake her. Much like Kung Fu fighting in the 70s, stakes was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how that's exactly what happens. And then Mama Wadi's like, no, how could you? And he's like, I cannot lose her twice. Life is not worth living. So I'm just gonna go upstairs and wait for the sun to rise and die. And that's how the movie ends. <laughs> which explains the rearing is that a lot of tragedy can be averted if you like don't allow the sale of huge historical artifacts to private buyers but keep yes. them nice and institutional archives oh they were in LA not New York my, my but yes yeah that was that, that, that's really the problem but to be fair I mean probably um, a museum would have opened a casket too right because oh here's a casket I mean this is the like, this is like the moral of the mummy right like you just don't mess with stuff. <laughs> don't open uh-huh. caskets yet. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't take stuff from its homeland and mess with it uh-huh. so my, my follow up question is this explains the reincarnated wife uh-huh. it doesn't explain Dracula might be a kind of okay dude after we've clearly established for a very long period of time he is not. He is the opposite of a good dude. When did he become sympathetic? I, I mean, maybe around the same time. Because Mama Wade is kind of sympathetic. He, I mean, he really he was he was an, he was a good guy. He was cursed. I mean, he's not like he chose to become a vampire. In this, in this he's story, not in, Dracula, in, in, right? In, he's yeah, turned yeah. into a vampire by Dracula, which is, yeah. it like establishes the, Dracula yeah. as in the seventies. In the seventies, Tomb of Dracula comic by Marvel and Gene Colan, he was a bit of an anti-hero in that. He would occasionally well, team yeah. up with he would occasionally with team up with vampire yeah. hunters to mm-hmm. to 
kill worse monsters and vampires than he was. Right. He and, out, and, and, so and, that, and that started that started in like seventy two. So uh-huh. there was definitely an anti hero aspect to that. Hey, is it just because we want to have ongoing series and it's and it's hard to do that? And it's hard to do that if you just say the and the and the protagonist is a bad guy. You know, people want well, to follow a hero. But there's also the Christopher Lee movies, which like there's so hmm. many of them. Um, which like people I've, I've read like a quote over and over again. It, it's Tim Stanley saying, quote, Lee's sensuality was subversive and that hinted that a woman might quite like being have their neck chewed on by a stud. Um, also in that <laughs> film, Christopher Lee looks super excited to like bite Van Helsing and other male characters. So the, <laughs> people, people conveniently like feel like ignoring that like anyway. But like there's there's like I haven't seen all the Dracula movies, but in 1972 there is like the Dracula like AD thing. There's there's I mean there's like there's so many like Dracula stories that are weird. There's the Satanic Rites of Dracula, which like it's a series. Is my point? Um, it's weird. I don't I don't I don't know how to explain this series because like it just goes on and it's not like just in the 19th century because like the right Satanic Rites of Dracula are, like in the is in like 19 like set in 1970. We're talking about a lot of 70s stuff, which is, I mean, Blackula 72. You said Dracula AD is around the same time, right? What year? Uh, Yeah, 72. Which is also, interestingly enough, when Tomb of Dracula starts, right, Wayne? Mm -hmm. So 75 years after Bram Stoker's book. I don't think this is hugely mysterious. I think that we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. That's the counterculture movement. And Mm -hmm. um, we're we're starting to see Byronic heroes across the board, right? Even okay. a little earlier than that, um, cowboys, you know, who are Byronic heroes, who are just mm-hmm. a little bit too evil to live in the normal world, but they do good things anyway. And Dracula is literally a Byronic hero. He was based on a character based on Lord Byron, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So but it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that much to see, you know, you also have at the same time, John Gardner writing Grendel. I think it was 69. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, these stories that are told from the point of view of the monster. Mm-hmm. And that starts to get really, you know, really um, attractive because people start wanting to associate not so much with the establishment, right, as with the counterculture. Well, there's there's that there's a thing that Mav and I use in our, our comic stuff. Uh, and this comes from film theory, the whole outlaw hero, you know, official hero dichotomy. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that idea of, and I'm, I've, I've taught this, and I'm blanking on the guy's name, um, Robert Ray. And he talks about the, the dichotomy, the official hero and the outlaw hero. And the outlaw hero is someone like Robin Hood, who, you know, and, and the, the cowboy fits in this as well. It's someone who does the right thing, but doesn't quite fit into society. You know, they, they, the violence of the cowboy, the cowboy comes into town, and the town is being overrun by bad guys, and cowboy uses the same method of violence against those those violent cowboys to fix the problem, but then he has to leave because he can't he can't stay because you know, a nice yeah, society yeah. doesn't doesn't provide a place for him. So it, it, yeah. there's that anti hero aspect of that. As there well. is a there is a and this goes <laughs> once again in an episode where we bring up Mao's dissertation. Um, there is an argument that is essentially Robert Ray is is saying the rise of the the rise of the anti hero in in he's particularly invested in cowboy movies but yeah um i would say it goes goes across other things um uh jewett and lawrence would say that this is the arise of what they call the american monomyth which is highly tied to ideas of masculinity where Mm -hmm. the campbellian classic monomyth assumes that the um that the um the hero must rise from the people 
the American monomyth assumes that the, the hero not only rises from the people as a common representative, but the, but because of American exceptionalism, you know, the fiction of American exceptionalism, the American hero has to be an impoverished hero. He has to be a working man who's just not afraid to get dirty. He's gruff. He's, you know, mm-hmm. it's the self-made man is a big part of what yeah. that becomes. So then the anti-hero of Ray becomes, you are so much a hero of the society that once you, you know, that you have no place in it. So once you have vanquished the, um, the bad guy, you have to walk, you have to walk off into the you sunset against right the, the wind yeah. because that's what, that's what the hero does. Yeah. No, I can't help but bring up Batman at this point, you know. Yes. Uh, exactly Batman. It's exactly Batman. And they and Jude and Lawrence would reference that. They would say Batman is your example. <laughs> Except of course Batman is an aristocrat. Like yes. yeah, very like, much so. so. So I was actually just gonna bring up the in the twenty thirteen miniseries starring Jonathan Reese Myers, he plays <laughs> a, a version of Dracula who is masquerading as an American industrialist. Episodes of him uh, trying oh, to bring free electricity to the country and right. trying to right. purchase a uh, a coolant company for AC as like part of his like master plan. But, but totally, the idea that he is distinctly American seems to really, <laughs> seems to really fit with all of the, the mythology that we're talking yeah, here. I, compl- I completely I, forgotten I watched this. It, it was gone from my brain and as you yeah, describe yeah. it, it's like, oh, it should that. be. <laughs> Which does lead me to Dracula. Uh, Hannah, in our group text, you did text us, oh, I'm reading the book again, and uh, capitalism bad. Yes. And, and the whole time that I am watching this miniseries, it's all I can think about. One, because trying to turn 13 episodes of purchasing a coolant company absolutely feels like capitalism <laughs> bad. But also, like, I just want you to talk about that more, because when people talk about Dracula in terms of themes, like, they are always talking about the sex part, but they are not talking about the capitalism bad part. Okay, so in my notes, um, I wrote Parker is terrible and is resigned himself to his own fate because he, like, knows that he should leave, but he's stuck on business. And, like, it, so, like, the, the first part of the novel read it like listeners have not read it is that um parker is like journeying toward dracula's castle and the locals are like don't do this it's real bad you don't want to do this and he's like no i think i'm going to and then he like starts to like feel dread and he's like well i can't like i can't stop i can't like turn around because business like business business is important yeah and like and nasaratu has a little bit of this too um like it, it's like money over all else or like the the move of business and like it's it's weird that it's both like the doom of like these characters that they're like stuck on being useful and productive and like producing for like capitalism's sake and global capitalism's sake but they like but it's also seen as a virtue like Mina like is a school teacher before she and Jonathan marry and she's constantly like learning new skills and when she's like upset she becomes very utilitarian and very productive and actually eventually I think against Stoker's like probably thought process kind of exceeds the text and like has full authority over 
separate in many ways. Yeah, um, I totally agree with that, Hannah. To interrupt you just for a second, that the reason why Mina beats Dracula with her team that she assembles, right, yeah. is that she's a, she's better at document manipulation than Dracula is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we we've kind of hinted and talked about women a little bit in the text, but you know, Stoker is in some ways, on the surface at least, conservative when it comes to women. Like, there's the whole virgin whore dichotomy with like uh, the character of Lucy, who's very pure, and then she, well, besides being a racist, she's like totally a racist. Don't like gloss over that. She's really horrible, but she's like presented as pure, and then like she turns into a vampire and is you know sexy, voluptuous. Like her hair even turns dark. Um, there's the Dracula's brides we've talked about, and in the Powers of Darkness um, Icelandic version of Dracula, we see a lot more of the Dracula's brides and like the sexual thrill um, the Harker character feels. Um, he's called Thomas Harker in that. But Mina, and Mina actually at one point makes fun of the Victorian new women, and she's like, oh, they would propose to men themselves if they could. Um, but she's, she's still pretty subversive, actually. Like, quietly, I don't think Stoker meant to do that, but she's far more competent than all the men. Like, Van Helsing has like three professions, and yet dumb ass like keeps going to Amsterdam and leaving Lucy alone and he's his incompetence is why Lucy dies like totally 100% anyway that's my TED talk on Dracula (laughs) (laughs) like this weird bit that I'm remembering that one of the issues is that Dracula is also buying up a lot of land and houses and there's like this whole anxiety about like you know the the, these these foreigners coming and buying up our land gentrification Wait, is this? Are, are you guys referring, uh, Kate? Are you talking about this 2013 series now, or just in general the story of Dracula? I'm talking about the 1897 book. Oh no, like so, like Dracula is purchasing like land in England. That's why her travels out there, okay. and like that. Honestly, like yeah, like Monica's right. People talk about the sex, but I think the most obvious thing you could say about the 1897 novel, and why I've called it very obviously racist um, from it throughout, is it's it's just totally a xenophobic novel from the beginning. Um, it has a lot of specific racism in it, but like you know, Dracula is like a figure of anxiety um, as like a foreigner coming in, and in the eyes of the English slash their like. American and Dutch friends like polluting their nation. I mean, you're also looking at where he's coming from, too, and the very specific. Uh, historical anxieties of the time towards like uh, the Roma gypsy population. So like this is not just like a coincidence that he happens to be Eastern European. And, and it's very important to note that actually in the final confrontation and, and like Stoker uses the G word throughout the entirety of the book, but like the final confrontation, the Romani like are like his like henchmen and they take a big part in the action in the final battle they like are portrayed very negatively at the beginning with Stoker so yeah and and, like throughout the 19th century you see portrayals of traveling groups Romani Irish um, in novels like Emma where even when it's small bits um, people freak out when they're around and there were horrifying laws about you know strangers um, and wanderers throughout England Um, just like it was a, it was a very big thing, um, a very big touchstone of cultural anxiety. I also want to bring in that that vampires have often been a cultural touchstone for anxiety regarding Jews, mm-hmm. and, and that's Nosferatu. Like Nosferatu's, yeah, 
that's like very hashtag anti-Semitic. Yeah. And Harker um, says anti-Semitic stuff in Dracula yeah. proper as well. Yeah. So there's a there's a sense there that I mean, Dracula embodies whatever, you know, he's a vessel. You can whatever you want to put into him, you can put into him. Um, vampires have been used as uh, models for, you know, bad aristocracy, bad government. Had friends uh, all the way back to eighteen no seven the seventeen hundreds when uh, when the stories about vampires first started coming out of Serbia into the Western uh, Europe. So I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> and it's it's interesting that like you know uh, at the end of the nineteenth century anthropology was developing as a field, although we might call uh, what passes anthropology. Uh, anthropology then as like just armchair like writing and it's all extremely terrible. I, I noticed that like Jonathan's language when he described people mirrored some of the, that anthropology I read but also like the obsession with kinship lines and the strange subversion of kinship is also there and it's it's strange that like Stoker is very interested in like the heteronormative family in some ways like the end of Dracula spoiler alert is Mina survives she and Harker have a kid but also that kid carries like all the dudes names from like the band um men are constantly pull, pushing in blood into lucy like four men are in her blood and and arthur who is um engaged to lucy is like i felt if we'd truly been married implying all the men who gave lucy blood have also been married to her at one point lucy who remember was supposed to be like the pure girl says why can't i just marry all three men why can't a girl just marry three men because she doesn't want to make the other two men who propose to her unhappy by rejecting them it's 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 got a lot of anxiety about the family and where that's going as well i mean that does make me want to ask about something that uh kate brought up a little bit earlier which was this idea of mina is sort of talking down about the new woman while also embodying a lot of those sort of more take charge roles and in the more contemporary adaptations, you do see Mina is written as a character who's given more and more agency. For example, like in the miniseries, like we've now decided instead of a school teacher, like she's going to be an actor because that's like a more, uh, I guess, strong feminist portrayal. 2013 Mina's doctor. I do want to talk about these uh, these gender roles a little bit more and how they're they're changing over time, but also how it's sort of shifting the actual meanings of the text itself by doing that. There, there's the interesting bit, too, where Mina... Um, I think it's Mina jokes about all of the guys that are proposing to her. She says that she'll have like her own harem with them. At some that, point. That's Lucy. That's Lucy. Okay. Yeah. And there was also there. There's. I was trying to look this up, but there's a interesting article where someone makes the argument that there's nothing textually to say that I'm trying to figure out which fella it is. It might be C. Might be Seward. Basically, one of the guys may also be an immortal in his turn. It's. It's just like there's like so many like weird readings in here in the text that if you like poke at it a bit, you just end up with one more little puzzle. So maybe this is a good spot to talk costuming. Um, I guess one of the things that I noticed is is that you do see these gender roles start to like be reinforced. I, I don't want to say incorrectly, but according to these new narratives by the costuming in all of the adaptations that I've seen in terms of like Lucy really does get portrayed in much like much brighter colors, much more like 
sexually um, in, in clothing that there's always sort of this like depiction of like the woman who is um, overly fashionable is therefore like a symbol of her like eventual moral corruption because she's already been sort of corrupted by capitalism because again capitalism bad um, <laughs> so so you do sort of see these like she shows up in, in clothes that are like overly stylish or overly girly or overly bright because she's supposed to be the more beautiful of the two friends. Um, and then you do see Mina in, in her depictions, these attempts to make her more modern, but in dressing her more and more like a, I guess the, the description that's always sort of used is like a more of like a Gibson girl where she does have this like, her clothes look a little bit more ready-made. They look a little bit more menswear inspired. They look a little bit more like serious. Um, and, and in doing so it's again, like upending that these are originally the sort of women that she's um, criticizing within the novel. All I can think about is that hilarious dress that Lucy wears in the 1992 version, you knew I was going to go here. It's like, it's like a, a red prom dress, basically. Um, and it's oh, like, yeah, it's, it's like, oh, I heard that they wear corsets in the Victorian era. How about a corset full of ruffles? How about a dress that's just a corset? It's <laughs> like, like inexplicably, which is why I love this dress, even though it's terrible. Like inexplicably, she's just like out wandering in the night in this dress and like this like red scarf around her neck, just like blowing in the wind. And that's the one time I laughed during like that Dracula. You might say it's a poorly told story, but they really tell a story with the clothes. <laughs> For me, okay, okay. So to get into the fashion history of 1897, all of the clothes are legitimately like grotesque all on their own. Like, we're at a point when like bright, brightly dyed like fashions are what's in style to the point of them being described as like garish, which is why, you know, sort of as you get to the new turn of the century, like then you have all of these like really like plain white outfits start to pop up because, you know, like every fashion is going to be like a reaction to whatever was in style before. And it's basically because they pushed ugly as far as it could go in terms of color. They pushed sleeves to be as big as they could be. And I just don't quite understand knowing the horrors of the story that's being told, why we didn't choose costumes that are actually fitting that story really, really well. Not that these aren't also like grotesque all on their own, but you kind of like didn't have to take these giant creative licenses because honestly, like, it was kind of already there. You just just stick with it. I'm just kind of amazed that, you know, of everything in the movie, the sexy red dress is the thing that you guys trip over the most. Because you know Dracula's hair. I mean, that's what my brain goes to. Yep. Yeah. And, and also, like Lucy's wedding dress esque thing. You know, yeah. The, you know, there's there's a lot. It, it, yes. You know, because you know, were see, made in this film, and, and I, 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 I for one admire their bravery. <laughs> I, I often confuse that Dracula with Miss Doubtfire. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, as like a whole separate soapbox. Hair in period <laughs> dramas drives me fucking nuts. 
I'm not quite <laughs> sure why we've decided that every woman looks more attractive with her hair down, despite like historical evidence that no one's hair is down. <laughs> um, or the fact that like the literal ideal standard of beauty at that point in time was like hair should be up. They're like, nope, nope. A woman cannot be sexy without <laughs> hair flowing in the wind. You know what really bothered me about Penny Dreadful, uh, which is, of course, a takeoff of all of this stuff. But um starring Eva Green as uh, a Mina character, right? Um, but also Mina's that? friend, because Mina's a nothing character in this, yeah. That's right, it's Mina's friend. Um, but that that she would constantly go outside without wearing a hat. And I was just like, how would she, how could she possibly go outside without wearing a hat? It's the 19th century, for Christ's sake. <laughs> and I think, I mean, this is this is me. I, I never bump into this stuff. I, I honestly don't because I just, um, and I understand why, like, I mean, I absolutely understand why Monica does. It, this is way closer to your actual job, I mean, than me. I mean, it is your actual job. And and so, I I mean, not, not that you're working when you're watching something, you're just being critical of it because you're an expert there. But I just don't expect anything to be accurate. Kate, you at the beginning, you made you made jokes about their shoulder pads. Why? Because it was 1992 and 1992 was still kind of sort of part of the 80s. And that's what it was. You know, like it was a holdover from 80s fashion that was continuing into this film. Um, you know, why wh- why do women wear their hair down? Because we're trying to make people sexy for 1992 because that because that was the point of that film. It real I mean, why is Keanu Reeves in this film at all? No one sounds like that. No one's ever sounded like that. <laughs> right. No one has ever sounded like Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves doesn't even really sound like Keanu did this thing that he just did from where he he continued to be Ted Theodore Logan for every film for absolutely 20 years and like if you see Keanu talk like now you know whether it's in John Wick or whether it's in call you know uh call me maybe always or be maybe, my maybe always be, always be yeah always be my maybe sorry um Great or film. whether yeah or whether it's just on like him him showing up on the Jimmy Kimmel show or something Keanu just talks like a regular dude I mean he's got kind of an affect to his voice but he doesn't have and he doesn't talk like Ted Peter Logan. No, he just did. I mean, he talks like that in Bill and Ted, and he talks like that in Speed, and he talks like that in the first Matrix movie and everything yes. in between. And then by the second Matrix movie, which admittedly is not as good, he's just sort of starting to give that up and he's sort of starting to transition, you know. And you realize, no, wait a minute, not. that's not really, so. So why? I think I think these decisions were just made because it was the '90s, and 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 they were doing a thing, and you know, right. and, and you know, d- d- directors and you know, the so many the directors and you know with this the Mike as a dramaturg, you know, they they were going for look. It had nothing to do with historical accuracy, right? You know, they they uh, were creating a look for this film. I think it's uh, super interesting to remark on the fact that the next movie Keanu Reeves did was As You Like It with Ken. Branagh as a director and uh, he was playing a major role the evil prince is a major major role and they um, they coped with him by taking away all of his lines Mm -hmm. he tried so hard he tried so hard he tried so hard in both Dracula and yeah he tried and I I think he's tripping over the 90s-ness of of I I mean I'm not going to claim that that uh, that 92's Dracula is a good movie it's it is it is very much a 90s movie 
it is one of the most 90s movies that ever 90 it really is right like like that's why Keanu's there right it was much ado about nothing instead of as you like it by the way sorry, sorry much ado about nothing thank you and after that Keanu makes this movie called The Gift in 2000 like around the time that he's making these Matrix movies right and in The Gift it's not a movie that a lot of people saw it's a, it's a suspense thriller that I really like um, and you know, it's got mixed reviews but Keanu is acting in it and he's just acting He's just doing the character. He's kind of a bad dude, but he's not Ted Theodore Logan. And I think this is when Keanu realized, wait a minute, I don't have to be. I can just do, you know, I can just do the part. So I I think that's why he's I, I think that's a big part of of why he's like that in that movie. He's like that because they weren't casting a character for a Dracula movie. They were casting that guy who's hot from the Bill and Ted movies. Yeah, that is actually literally what they said. Um <laughs> Okay, here's a, here's a pet peeve I have about Dracula adaptations, which is there's a board game called The Fury of Dracula. It's like sort of like a game where like you one character is Dracula and other people are vampire hunters, and you know the vampire. I played that. Yeah, the vampire like does bad stuff, and like the vampire hunters are trying to stop the vampire. Um, but the, yeah, um, but like the original hunters were Van Helsing, Seward, and. God all mean, which we have not talked about author God all God all mean at all, which is a hilarious thing. But Nina Harker wasn't added as a hunter until like a secondary edition when she's like the most competent person in the novel. Like they would not. I know. (laughs) I know they would not like they would not catch Dracula without Mina. Like like full stop. Mina is the beating heart of that story. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. Like like not only does she like have full authorial control over the text because she like for those of you who haven't read the novel like transcribe everything and like type it up in her typewriter and like make sure that like there are copies that exist when Dracula destroys like a lot of the original documents but like she ends up thinking like a vampire when she's been bitten and like can lead them places and again as I believe Michael pointed out she's like the person who actually has a strong will of mind because Jonathan Harker like breaks down and is like I can't handle this I can't handle not knowing if this is real or not she by the way goes to Carpathia to find him when he disappears and she does a lot better than he does in the far east there yep and that that is also true in powers of darkness as well um with the character wilma which is a a fantastic book by the way which if if the listeners haven't read this book powers of darkness is amazeballs (laughs) yeah like it's like you want like ritual sacrifices and thought that was missing from the original dracula read powers of darkness and also it brings like a more global like context to it because it's like you know for the icelandic audience I was just going to say, maybe that's why these adaptations just like make me so annoyed. Because what we're essentially describing is that Mina on her own is perfect, is capable, is strong, is badass. And then they're like, you know what? It doesn't work for me anymore. Like the idea that now like she needs to be a love interest kind of like detracts from all of the badass autonomy that she had before. The fact that like we need to turn her into a doctor is like, oh, being a teacher, even though a teacher clearly had all of the like dictation skills that were super fucking useful the first time around, like isn't good enough for us. And like, I don't know, it's kind of annoying. Feminized labor, man. Like women are teachers and dudes are doctors. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and one of the interesting things, like it's a cultural thing. Like if you apparently if you go to Russia, doctors is a feminized profession and it's mostly women and they're 
paid like tiddlywinks, essentially. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's also, and I mean, Kate, you'll probably back this up. It's uh, it's not only feminized labor, but it's a narrative thing that we do that in order to this is a this is a particularly Western and specifically American problem. We in 20th century, 21st, late 20th century, 21st century works, we will make a strong female character by taking away the feminized aspect of her character, Mm -hmm. particularly with jobs and providing a masculine. So, you know, why, why is, um, why can't Mina be a teacher? Why does she have to be a doctor? Because doctor is a manlier job and therefore we perceive it as having more agency, even if we don't change the story. It's the same reason. Um, for the Thor movie, just picking something, the the Marvel Comics Thor movies, um, uh, Natalie Portman's Jane Foster is an astrophysicist. She'd never been an astrophysicist before. She was in the comics. She was a nurse when she first appeared. And then later, they were like, we want her to be a doctor because doctors are cooler than nurses, which is a problem and insult all nurses. But like that was a, but that was a decision they made. And then they were like, nope, doctor's not cool enough for her astrophysicist, just because. And just <laughs> as a, a footnote on Mina and we don't have time to, to go into this um, Alan Moore uses her in League of the Extra- League of, his League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series as mm-hmm. his really his main protagonist in that it's main series um, main, one of two her and yeah. Quartermain Alan Quartermain are arguably the two main they're the two that go through go the longest throughout throughout the and drive and, and help mm-hmm. and drive the story yeah yes so, I, was, I was waiting for someone to bring that up yeah and and and, and Penny, Penny Penny Dreadful is is an attempt to do a better movie version of mm-hmm. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen than the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen well, movie was because the film version of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has to oh. very specifically say no, she's not cool enough being Mina. She's got to be a, va- a vampire too, which mm. is vaguely a part of the story, maybe kind of subtext in the original League of Extraordinary Gentlemen we like, don't comics. See it. We, yeah, she doesn't have all the powers and no, all that but stuff. Like, so. But like, but, no, she's just no. not badass enough for the screen, mm. uh, at least according to the film producers. So they yeah. made her, you know, they made her a movie vampire with lots of superpowers. Yeah, terrible. So. Listen, before we before we close out, I think somebody should bring up the 2020 Dracula miniseries that was on Netflix. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I chose this topic. This was on you. you. You're the one who wanted to do this. Yes, and we got this far without talking about it. I haven't watched it. I'll be honest yeah, about it. Yeah, I've, heard, I've not I've seen heard, it. I've heard things about it. I've not bothered to watch it. Michael, so it's, it's left to the, those of you who have. Oh, no. Now I feel really bad for bringing it up. Um, <laughs> Well, it was it was developed by the uh, the Doctor Who crowd, Mark Gaddis and Stephen Moffat. Uh huh. Yep. Um, starred Os um, Bang, who's a Danish rocker, I think, uh, as Dracula. And um, it's basically what happens is, is that uh, it's really the process of Harker, who is now in the convent somewhere in Transylvania, um, trying to recover from his time with Dracula. And he is um, he is questioned by a woman, a nun named Sister Agatha Van Helsing. Oh, my God. I watched this, too, and forgot about it. Wow. <laughs> I just blacked out everything Dracula. Wow. Yes, I watched this. And I thought it was super interesting because one of the questions that she asks him straight out is, did you have sexual intercourse with Count Dracula? You know, and he's like, of course not. Of course not. Well, of course he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's interesting. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've not wow. seen it. So. All right, moving on. Yeah, I, I didn't think I had and just that description. Like, yeah, I watched that. 
Uh, wow. <laughs> so we resolve nothing, apparently. <laughs> we, I, think, I think maybe everyone could agree that the original novel of Dracula called Mina Harker, because that's the main character. <laughs> I would call it Mama all day, but, you know, it's just me. You know. <laughs> I mean, do you do you really want compare rap? I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, I'm trying to say that Dracula is a terrible character. He's supposed to be a terrible character. He's yeah, a monster. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying, do you really want to collapse those characters? Well, okay, so so here's the thing, and and this is the it's one you know as we wrap up, I just want to sort of ponder this, right? Is part of the the point, part of the, the reason we like this? I mean, um, Kate, this is a massive part of your of your entire research. It, well, vampires in general, but like you have a book about vampires in general, but Dracula is the most famous of them, um, and the Dragon Force, and Blackula is looked at. As the seminal classic of uh, of black exploitation film, it is a very important film. Um, quite honestly, if you try to watch it today, for any of our listeners who are trying, to, it is it is dated as all hell. Um, there's a lot of cursing. You're going to hear a bunch of n words. You're going to hear um, gay slurs. You're going to hear a lot of stuff that you're going to find. Why why did Mav like this movie? And it's also very very bad i would argue it's not bad i would argue that the budget was 47 dollars, and you know you get what you get even 47 dollars in 1972 money i mean I, I don't know what the actual budget was but it's not high and when you watch it you can tell it, it, this is made on a shoestring this is like literally you know, i feel like i want to i want to speak up for the actor who played blackula william marshall yes um because he actually was a very accomplished actor this may yeah. not have been the high point of his career, but no, I think he's good in it. He got an Emmy, mm-hmm. and he was uh, he played Doctor Richard Daystrom on Star Trek. Well, yes, and, and I, I think he's good, good in Blackula. I think that yeah, I think that it's easy to discount these things because it is a I was going to say two dimensional. It's a one dimensional script. There's nothing to this story, right? But I do think that what's happening by using this very simplistic, very he is evil, muhahaha, but he's got layers because he's in love. You know, that's the story of Blackula, and like that's it. That's the entire that's the entire movie. And I think that you, you know, to the extent that we're trying to like deconstruct Dracula, you know, over the ages you know okay he's evil and he's a monster but you know are they doing something interesting talking about capitalism discuss right like i think that like if we look at um tropey genre media um be it black exploitation films be it like um generic monster movies or be it like the genesis of the horror genre right I think that if we look at these tropey media and like say if we're going to work with the tropes and then try to investigate what is what is this saying that's special about culture I think there's value in that and I think there's got to be value when you look at you know this one story that is arguably shy of stories about Jesus one of the most adapted characters in the history of literature and film that's got to mean something right I gotta throw it out there we missed Dracula too 2000. The whole point of Dracula 2000 was vampires start because of Judas, who was in gay love with Jesus. Yep. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm also going to throw out there the uh, the attempt to cash in on the popularity and success of Young Frankenstein with the 1974 David movie, David Niven movie, Old Dracula. Mm-hmm. It, it was a comedy. 
Uh, so they say. <laughs> <laughs> I just say we just scratched the surface. I mean, we oh, can yeah. talk yeah. about yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is, uh, and, I, and I also want to bring up and not discuss the fact that Dracula is actually the anti-Jesus. He's like the reverse Jesus. Yes. Not, yeah. I also want to m- mention that I was playing Super Smash Brothers this weekend, and one of the uh, locations is Dracula's castle. And um, things we did not discuss in this episode include all the video game adaptations and also. All the fan fiction I quickly found on archive of our own five minutes before we record this episode. Mm-hmm. Amazing. What has the most ships? I should ask that before I, I like, like, like what something. relation? What relationship is the most popular? You mean? Yes. Dracula slash Jonathan Harker. Okay. The, uh, more so than more so than Mina. That's what I was what I was yeah. guessing it would be. And, yes. and Jonathan Harker slash Mina Harker is the second most popular. The third most popular really? is Dracula slash Mina. And the fourth most popular and the fifth, because Mina Harker is also Mina Murray, is Mina Harker slash Lucy Westernalia, Mina Murray slash Lucy Westerner. See, Renfield gets no love. Yeah, wait, so, no. so, so oh, yeah, he didn't get any mentions in this episode at all. Just by the blood is the life being like a very important line. Anyway, hey, I call Xander and Buffy, Dark Masturbator. Just throwing it out there. Classic. Classic. I don't even want to put out my, my point anymore. I was just going to say, I find it fascinating that um, Jonathan and Mina beats out Mina and Dracula. Jonathan and Mina, I mean, it's just. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the story. That's not. Why is that well, even interesting? Canon. Well, like yeah, I, 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 bet, I bet it's like people who are like I don't know. I haven't read any of these. They pulled up five minutes ago. But I bet it. You know, like that people are exploring something. They're like, yeah, all right. Me and Jonathan <laughs> are in a relationship. I. I they are. I, okay. Sure. I guess. Yeah. You know, it's it's like <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, gonna go home and watch, read some Ao3, and we can reconvene next Halloween <laughs> and discuss what we found. <laughs> Right, I'm going back into the coffin that Matt keeps for the rest of the year. Like, oh, before we do that, uh, Mike, is there anything you want to plug? Yeah. Um, so we have launched, I think since the last time I was on the show, or maybe it was just recently, the Center for Monster Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And you can find out all about it at monsterstudies.ucsc.edu. And if you want a carefully curated list uh, with links of all the times I've been on this podcast, you can go to monsterstudies.ucsc.edu slash media hyphen appearances. And you can find all the times I've ever been on this podcast and many other podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like every episode for the last year and a half. Uh, you can follow me at Notorious PhD on Twitter. Although if you do, you will find it a singularly unrewarding experience. <laughs> What about I, you? I don't know how, sing- I don't know how singular that is, Mike, because mine is equally unrewarding. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, what about you? Probably unrewarding. If anyone wants, on October 29th at, from 1 to 2 p.m. Central, I'm going to be doing an online event called Bats and Bobs with the Rare Book and Manuscript Library. And I will be pulling out our first edition of Dracula and some 17th century magical texts and generally nerding out about like old monsters, like old, old, and people can ask questions about them. It'll be fun. That'll be linked in the show notes. And Monica Marvelous. Uh, I don't have anything specific to plug this week. So uh, if you want to continue to talk about... Uh 
why the costumes in Dracula adaptations are so bothersome. Uh, you can find me on <laughs> Twitter or on Instagram. That's at Monica Marvelous. Uh, on Instagram, that's going to be L-O-U-S. And on Twitter, that's going to be L-O-U-X. Still working on getting that fixed. <laughs> Uh, Palindrome Hannah. Um, well, if you, I guess I have nothing to plug because uh, following me on Twitter is also a singularly unrewarding <laughs> experience. Um, it also only works if, well, and also you're, you, it only works if you follow them back because you're, you're friends only. So I don't know. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I got tired of the internet during the pandemic. What can I say? Um, <laughs> but I guess you could follow the show um, on Twitter at Box Popcast. And if you want to talk about how unromantic it is that Dracula throws a fit in the 1992 version and decides, hmm, what could be good about this? I'll kill Mina's best friend Lucy. That's romantic. Sure, tweet about that at Fox Popcast and I'll see it. And maybe I'll, you know, feel the need to become public again to say more words. People actually not. should do that. Like, I mean, we, we don't talk about it a lot, but yeah, um, anything we talk about on the show, yeah, tweet us responses because we, we do read them. On, I mean, we, we read, we can all read the Vox Popcast um, Twitter account and, or, you know, comment on this show or any other one on the show's blog, on the show notes you can leave us comments either on facebook or on twitter or directly on the website so um, i mean we always like that stuff i don't use facebook but i did answer someone's comment about (laughs) two years ago now i guess about spider-man so you can get me to come out of the dark (laughs) out of the dark what do you do do in the shadows (laughs) that's deeply personal (laughs) i just want to say say fangs for the memories yeah wayne what about you (laughs) i got nothing new this week uh here mostly uh Home on the five star review. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And you can follow me as always on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where, as I said, you can leave us comments on this show or any other show. And you can read our calls for comments where we talk about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. You get a You get a little preview. Next week's about witches. That's going to be interesting. You know, we've got it's Halloween time, you know, so we're going to do some Halloween shows. And if you enjoy the show, we certainly hope you do. Then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. Leave us a five star review. If you leave us a five star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out, especially if you don't just leave us a five star rating. But if you actually review the show and write a little something, something about how awesome we are. And one of our catchphrases like you like eugenics bad or capitalism bad or home of the five star review all of those things actually really do help us they um, move us to the top of the rankings they help other people find the show and they make us feel good especially me i'm trying to finish a dissertation and i'm working at three jobs seriously i need your love people that's what, it, that's what i live for and do us a favor you can also subscribe to us on our youtube channel at vox podcast on youtube i'm a little behind there i haven't been posting the shows um but i'm hoping to catch up on that soon but you can subscribe to us there so i would like to thank maximilian 
We're not there yet. We're not there yet. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song playing ever so more epically. Mike, now hit it. <laughs> like to thank all of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.